Greetings and welcome to Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. We're coming at you again from Clayton Studio just outside St. Louis, Missouri. I'm Brian Reardon, your host, and with me as always is Marianne Steiner, the editor of Health Progress. Hello, Marianne. Hi, Brian. So this episode is going to be a fun one, I think. Um, We're really going to get into a pretty interesting topic that's been in the news, and I think a lot of people... um, think about when they think about your health and this whole notion of of genetics. So we're going to talk to a couple of ethicists uh, in this episode about ethical issues in emerging genetic technologies. Um, So, Brian, first of all, I want to say that this conversation is happening because CHA has sponsored our annual ethics colloquium, and we've been um, fortunate to have a lot of people at the colloquium. And that's wonderful because the topic that we're on this this time is genomics, genetics, and um, ethical considerations on that. So it's wonderful to have the two guests that we have today to explore some of those a little bit further. Yeah, let me introduce our two guests. Uh, with us in studio here is Dr. Paul Shears. He's the Associate Professor of Moral Theology and Ethics, the School of Theology and Religious Studies at the Catholic University of America. Dr. Dr. Schur's research is the moral theology of biotechnology and medical practice. I hope I got that all out right. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to have you with us. And also with us is Father Kevin Fitzgerald. He's the John A. Creighton University Professor, Endowed Chair and Associate Professor with the Creighton University School of Medicine. Father Fitzgerald's research efforts focus on the investigation of abnormal gene expression in cancer and on ethical issues in biomedical research and medical genomics. Lots to spit out there. Boy, these titles are getting longer and longer, but uh, really happy to have you here as well, Father Fitzgerald. Thank Thanks you. for being with us. Great to be with you. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we'll just dive right in. Well, I'm going to ask the first question, which is that I think for a long time, uh, 15 or 20 years, I've been hearing about the Human Genome Project, and I pretend like I know what it is, but I don't really. And then I was sort of surprised to hear today um, that that it's basically considered a disappointment. So I was wondering if you two would talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so the Human Genome Project was a project that started in the late 1980s where scientists wanted to sequence all of the DNA in the human genome, so all the DNA in the human body. And this actually went faster than people thought, and so by around 2000, they had a good structure, and about 2002, it was mostly complete. The reason they wanted to sequence the the genome is that it was thought that most of our diseases would have single genes that either caused them or gave a major predisposition. And, and there, do, do we have reason to think that? Are there diseases that we know exactly tie into that, like cystic fibrosis? Is that one of it, them? Exactly, yeah. The scientists had good reason for thinking this. I mean, there's cystic fibrosis, there's Huntington's disease, there's a number of other uh, genetic diseases, heritable diseases, that do follow this pattern. And with predisposition, we can think of breast cancer with BRCA1 and 2 mutations. The idea that we would, would was, though, that we would find many more of these genes. And that has not as fully f- been fleshed out. Mm-hmm. We've moved more to the idea that a lot of genes might cause a small increase in predisposition to, to, to disease. Right. I, I think also, if you go back in the literature at that time, there was the idea that um, a very small part of our genome was in fact going to be the important part because that was the part that was going to actually what we say code for particular proteins Mm -hmm. so these were the genetic stretches of information that would be read 
turned into what we call messenger RNA that would be then translated into proteins. And they recognized the fact that most of the genome was not involved in that. Hmm. So they called it junk DNA. And uh, one of the surprises that came out of the Human Genome Project was, first of all, um, that we don't have the incredible number of genes that we thought we did. In fact, we don't have many more genes than small little worms we use in research called C. elegans. But on the other hand, what we did discover was that nature doesn't really take all that time to replicate an entire set of genes in our genome and make it just junk. And it turned out that, surprisingly, a lot of this other genetic material had other sorts of responsibilities and roles that we had not anticipated. So in one sense, we were much simpler than we thought we were going to be, yet in another sense, we were much more complicated than we thought. And that changed then our understanding of the role of genetics in disease. And so we now, we hear a lot about CRISPR technology where they can actually go in, and I don't even, I can't even begin to fathom how they can do this at such a very extreme microscopic level, but they can go in and actually alter genes. Can you give us sort of a layman's overview of how that works? And, and again, we can get into the ethical implications, but I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated on that technology and how that came about. Yes, this technology arose from basic research on bacteria, that they discovered that there were these runs of repeats of short DNAs that targeted viral genomes, that targeted viruses in the cell. And so bacteria use these basically as a bacterial immune system. They, these little DNAs would bind to the viruses and there would be proteins that would glom onto there and cut the viral DNA, killing the viruses. Kind of like a scissor? Exactly. But they, it's frequently spoken of as a molecular scissors, right? And so what a number of sciences, scientists, so Jennifer Doudna, Emmanuel Charpentier, Feng Zhang, have discovered how to move that from the bacteria into human cells, basically, and changed it so that they could put in these small stretches of DNA that could target any DNA sequence in the human cell. Did right. the DNA that they insert, was that human DNA, or was did it come from someone else? Did it come from that person's DNA, or did it come from another oh, source? So the, the DNA that they use to tar target it, it's, I mean, mostly that they make it up in the lab, huh. oh. right? So you can make long stretches of DNA synthetically now. So they just take these, you can design it against any sequence in the human genome, pretty much. There's some technical details, but... You're, you're hacking your DNA. Yeah, basically you can hack your DNA, Crazy. cut it at any point. And, this, and in a sense, if you go back and look, I mean, we've been talking about gene therapy and genetic treatments for decades. Mm -hmm. Why is that the case? Because back in the 70s was when they discovered first that there were these proteins, these molecules, that could cut DNA. Mm -hmm. And back then, the idea was... There were a lot of them, but they were very, very specific. So they were targeted only to a specific stretch of, say, six or eight or 12 ACGs and Ts that had to be lined up precisely. So while that was an incredible advance, and in fact led to the Asilomar meeting in the late 70s, because we now realized we could take DNA from humans and put it in bacteria or DNA from bacteria and put it in humans. Not sure why we would want to do that, but in any case, that's what led to that meeting. And as we've gone through the decades, we've been having these discussions regarding 
what an ethical use of this technology may be. Now, it hasn't been as much in the public eye because, again, we've been rather restricted in what we could do and limited also by cost. The real revolution of CRISPR is the fact that it is much more accurate, it's much more easy to use, and it's much cheaper. And so now we've gone from a very complicated and expensive way of doing it to basically kids going into their garages in junior high and being able to use CRISPR kits and manipulate bacteria. Yeah, my head is spinning. That just sounds crazy. All right, so here's the, here's the big question for you, Father Fitzgerald. Um, this sounds like playing with God. And so what is, what is the Catholic Church's position on all this? So this is a great, I love that phrase, playing God, because when people say, oh, goodness, we're playing God, I say, I wish we were playing God, because God plays very nicely. God lets us win every now and then. God doesn't need to do that. And God makes sure that in the end, everything hopefully works out, you know, as well as it possibly can. So I'd love to be playing God, but I think what they're trying to say is we're messing around with stuff we shouldn't be messing around with. Okay. The Catholic position on that, while not strictly um, black and white, this is good, this is bad, is to say, if we're doing something that is to benefit this human being, to in some way, shape, or form help that person deal with a debilitation or a disease or an injury or something like that, and at the same time, promote that person's dignity that person's sense of fulfillment and that person's ability to be in relationship with the people that that person cares for, that's a good thing. And so, in fact, if we could use these technologies, as amazing as they are, to do exactly that, that would be a good thing. But that sounds like a timing thing. So what you just said, I think, sounds to me like we can consider it legitimate or illicit if we're repairing or enhancing the life of someone as they'd like it to be enhanced. But what we're saying to be careful of is getting in before that. So we don't want to do things as they re- as they um, would hold with a per- with a person still in being formed in a biological sense, or particularly in terms of populations. Right? That's that's where the care comes in. Right. There's two distinctions that uh, that the church makes in its teaching. The first is this therapy versus enhancement. So therapy is fixing a disease, fixing a genetic defect. And that's what uh, Father Kevin was talking about. Versus enhancement making, you know, we know that if we mutate certain genes, we can make people very strong, right? Give them increased muscle mass. That's not repairing, treating an illness. It's just enhancing someone beyond what they would normally be. So the church is skeptical of enhancement because you bring into, well, how do you judge what is better than well? Like, what do we judge? That that creates all kinds of particular problems with judging what makes a good human or not. The second distinction, which is important, is what's called somatic cell therapy versus germline therapy. And somatic cell therapy just means you're treating an adult. Right. You're treating an adult or a child who's already old enough. They have some kind of disease. They can give consent, and there's they, they're, they're dealing with a disease that's already there. So what you were saying mm-hmm. about the timing. Mm-hmm. Germline is you're talking about a muta- uh, 
genetic change that will be passed on to the next generation. So you're either going into the sperm and eggs of people or you're uh, mutating or changing a very early embryo, which is, that is more problematic because there's no consent, it raises risks as to what's going to happen to this child, and, and it enters the human um, gene, it enters the, the human gene pool, so it gets passed on into right. society. So does the church say be careful, or does the ter- church say no? The church says no on the germline. Mm-hmm. Well, although, although again, uh, for now, right. yeah, and there, there's also again, we, we try to be yeah. very sophisticated about yeah. our reasoning in this regard. So one of the things we're always uh, careful of is to say, well, what is the goal here? What's mm-hmm. the intent, right? So let's say you had the opportunity to intervene in utero, say during fetal development, which would have significant impact on lessening the severity of a disease. Mm-hmm. And the tissues that you are targeting have nothing to do with sperm and egg. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be passed on to the next generation. However, in utero. In utero. Mm-hmm. Okay. However, you cannot guarantee that the tissues that lead to the development of sperm and egg will not also be somehow impacted by the treatments that you're giving to this developing fetus. So now the idea would be you would be aware that there's the possibility of germline alterations, but that would not be your intent, nor your target. Would you be able to do something, right, Mm -hmm. that would help this developing human being, right, deal with a very severely debilitating illness or disease, and at the same time allow for a small, what would small be, we'd have to determine that, right, risk that in the end, it might get into the germline and then potentially be passed on to the next generation. Now, of course, that requires that that person then have children, mm-hmm. which is a whole other mm. question, right? Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of areas here where things are not as black and white as we would like them to be, but on the other hand, that's reality. So we're going to have to be very good at what we do in our reasoning, which uh, I and, and others, I think, would argue is something that I think our moral tradition is actually well-equipped to do. So let me take a quick break because this is a lot to... I want I want our listeners to get a chance to just kind of absorb this and, and wrap their head around it. And then when we come back from our short break, we'll talk about some of the ethical considerations that are out there as this technology advances and what this could potentially mean for... Uh, healthcare in the United States and around the world. So we'll be right back with Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. The Catholic Health Association of the United States has launched the Medicaid Makes It Possible campaign to ensure that Medicaid remains a viable, efficient, and effective program. This essential health insurance program and the lives of 74 million people who rely on it is at risk due to legislative and administrative proposals that could dramatically cut funding and reduce eligibility. There's a real risk that millions of vulnerable individuals and families will lose their health coverage. Now is the time to raise our collective voice about the importance of Medicaid. Tell us your story of how Medicaid makes it possible. For more information on how to participate, please visit chausa.org slash Medicaid. And welcome back to Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. Again, I'm your host, Brian Reardon. With me is Marianne Steiner and our two guests in studio 
are Dr. Paul Shears from the uh, Catholic University of America and Father Kevin Fitzgerald from Creighton University. Again, thanks for both of you for being in studio and talking about this fascinating topic. So we talked about some of the background on uh, emerging genetic technologies, the church's position. What is the promise of this technology? Well, there are a number of diseases, as we talked about earlier, which are caused by single gene mutations, right? And we know what the cause is, and if we can go in, and there's a, in like a adolescent or adult, or even a developing human in the womb, we can alter those, hopefully, right? And there are technologies, there's been treatments with earlier kinds of gene editing technologies of various kinds of diseases, like a one famous one is severe combined immune deficiency, which is a, a horrible disease where a single gene knocks out the immune system. And yeah, David the Bubble Boy. Right. Bubble you remember okay. that, yeah, right? Yep, right. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And they've been able to go in, add back that gene, and uh, cured those illnesses. And, and one of the ways in which this technology is being used now, currently, is in oncology. So that is the area right now where this genomics is most applied, all right? And in terms of what you often hear about individualized medicine or personalized medicine or precision medicine, this is the precision part. So the idea is now we can take a sample of a tumor that somebody may have, and we'll take a sample of their normal tissue, their healthy tissue, and then we'll look to see what genetic mutations have occurred which have led to the development of the cancer. And having that information, we can then say, all right, can we create or can we choose drugs or treatments that we know will be more efficacious against the tumor and yet not damage the healthy tissue as much? That's been the real push. You, you kind of hear of immunotherapies, right, and targeted cancer treatments. That's what's behind it. Because so we can now use this CRISPR technology if you want to go in and change the genetics of what we call T cells. They're part of the white blood cells that we talk about. And we can do a job to allow those T cells to do a much better job of attacking the tumor tissue. The other place where this has really driven medical uh, and might really influence uh, healthcare in the future is basic research. This has just been amazing for basic research because it just makes it much cheaper, much easier. You can do it all kinds of cell lines, and it's really pushing things forward. One of the research, point. there was the, the Pioneer 100 Wellness Project, and that actually incorporated not only the genomics of it, but also the environmental. We, we, you know, we talk about nature versus nurture, and obviously, you know, the nature of your DNA is one thing, but also you, everything, how you behave, everything you interact with the environment. So, what do we know on that of this technology versus somebody who's just, you know, you know, living in a, a challenging environment? Maybe you know, don't really, they don't have any interest in, in eating well and all, in exercising and doing everything you know doctors tell you to do. What's what's the dilemma there? Well, that's an, it's a great question, actually, because then this gets back to this issue of treatment versus enhancement or what is the goal of you using this technology. So uh, there are certainly people, I am sure, who would love to be able to say, um, Doc, I want you to make me perfectly healthy and I don't want to exercise, yeah. I don't want to eat right, I don't want to get off the sofa and stop binge-watching awesome. TV. Right, exactly. And yet you're going to fix me so that I can do all of that. So then the question is, okay, is that really the goal, right? 
So this is part of the challenge that's going to be going forward. In one sense, that is a pipe dream because the, the technology doesn't do that. And even the kinds of interventions we're talking about now don't give you that sort of miracle pill outcome, right? So this is, this is in a way, a good reality check, not just for medical professionals, but also for patients. Yes, there are many good things that we just said that this technology may be able to do in our efforts to help people get better but people are still gonna be responsible themselves for making those lifestyle changes that they need to make to get better or to prevent something from happening. And these technologies, in general, they will always have a risk attached to them, yeah. right? CRISPR can cut other places. There's various kinds of imprecision that goes along with it. So the risk makes sense for some very severe genetic disorders and that I mean many people are willing to undertake that risk or even for some very serious diseases like HIV people might be willing to undertake those risks but for the average kind of concern that the average patient have heart disease diabetes those kinds of risks it makes much less sense to undergo this kind of therapy and it would also be really quite expensive just in the ethical um, dimension is it is it true that when you um, are doing this kind of research, you're basically investing in research for the most common problems and not investing so much money in research in the, you know, very, very rare ones? Can you talk about wh how the money gets divided in terms of population problems? Right. So this, this is a, another great question and a real tension in the research. Because, as you've often heard, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, <laughs> right? So the idea is, now you have this incredible genetic technology, let's do research on the things that this technology is going to be able to address well, right? So there are huge health issues that CRISPR technology is not necessarily going to be the solution for. It may help us in the basic research to understand it better, but in the end, we're still going to be back to the traditional sorts of interactions between the physician and the patient or the nurse and the patient and, and you know, saying to them, you need to change your lifestyle in order to achieve the things that you say you want to achieve, right? I want to feel better. I want to have more energy and all that sort of thing. So ultimately... The answer is no. This is another tool in the toolkit. And we still need to have people understand that to achieve the goal that we want, not just individually, but on a population level, of having a healthier society, right? Not enhanced, not, you know, super human beings heading off into outer space. <laughs> We're just talking about a healthier society in today's terms we're still going to be slogging away and trying to address those marvelously difficult social determinants of health that are still leading to the great burden of disease in our nation and in our world. Right. Is yeah. there, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, no, so genetics is only a small part of these things. It's a part, but yeah, culture, nurture, social setting really makes a huge difference for most of the common problems. I've really liked the way you both used we a lot, and um, I wonder who the we is. Are you talking about scientists? Are you talking about researchers? Are you talking about entrepreneurs? Are you talking about um, a faith community building into this? Are you talking about the church knowing what to do with these things? 
I guess one of the hopeful things about the Human Genome Project was that you had the sense that a bunch of people were working on this together. Is that still true? Yes. Um, this kind of technology, because of its broad applicability and relative ease of use and the you know inexpensive nature of it, can be applied broad. It is being applied broadly. It's already in agriculture. They're looking at ways of doing this. It's already in research with microorganisms and things like that and developing things for food processing, but other kinds of process, making plastics, making, you know, more environmentally friendly sort of uh, materials. So it is already out there and being used broadly. My experience is that all of those industries are very aware of the need to bring the public along in this regard. You do not want to just sort of drop this out there and say, you know, oh, here it is, isn't it great, and have the public go, no, you know, you didn't tell us about this beforehand, and we're not happy. Yeah. So they've learned in that sense from the past. I think the big issue or the big example there is genetically modified foods, which the scientists thought was going to be the greatest thing since literally sliced right. bread and has yet turned into this very convoluted, controversial right. issue. Yeah. Yeah, when we talk about we, we have to think of this as we as a political society, we with a common good that we're aiming at. How are we going to deploy these things? And this is where it can't just be left to expert bodies to decide. It has to be a process that brings in the voices of many different groups. And we talk about we in Catholic healthcare and yeah. limited resources. Mm -hmm. you know, we don't have open checkbooks in our health systems to tackle all the health issues that are out there. So I think another question that comes up ethically is how much do you put into this research versus investing in topics that we've talked about, Marianne, that, you know, addressing social determinants of health. Like in our last episode, we talked a lot about, you know, food and water and recognizing the importance of those basic elements. In this episode, we're talking about some really complicated technology that costs a lot of money to do. So is that an ethical consideration for healthcare providers and how much resources we put in one bucket over here for genomics versus the sort of blocking and tackling we do every day to address the health mm -hmm. in our communities? It's been interesting, but I would go back and say in the past 15 years, we have seen a increase in public interest and engagement in research decisions. What are we going to research? What are we going to look at? Now, this has kind of come out of the patient advocacy population where they have said to researchers who were sort of sitting there saying, please give us your money and we'll go research this disease and you wait 30 years and we'll come back with whatever we've discovered. And of course, the patient advocacy groups are saying, we, we want it now. Right. So there's this tension. How do we address that? I think we have to do these considerations and deliberations ahead of time and say, what are our problems? What is the likelihood that this technology, this amazing technology, is going to be a good solution, both time-wise and fiscally, in terms of getting us an efficacious outcome? So if someone came along and said, we might be able to genetically engineer this bug to eat all the plastic that's floating around in our oceans right now, and it would be degraded into very environmentally friendly compounds, I think someone would say that'd be worth the cost. But if someone says, we want to genetically engineer this bug so we could put it in lava lamps and it'll glow different colors under different stimuli, you might say, mm, maybe not so much. Right. And I think whenever you're thinking about these allocations, you always have to think about the preferential option for the poor in a right. Catholic setting. And But that has multiple 
thing. So social determinants of health obviously is is doing that. But there's also a rare disease community where a lot of it's a large community, but each disease has a very small number of people. And knowing that we are researching for them, I think they are a population of the poor, mm -hmm. and that is offering solidarity to a number of people. So these are needs that need to be balanced. I was um, moved by the end of your presentation today when you talked a lot about the the social um, social justice issues, so solidarity. And I, um, solidarity is one I, I'd like you to talk about a little bit more because when you listen to things like this, it sounds like it's far off and um, out of most people's standard three lanes. But it really, for me, it felt like solidarity was the issue that um, was trying to bring people together in areas of health, in areas of um, research, and in areas of how we can be good and in some ways uphold the dignity of everybody. Yes, so solidarity is the aiming for the common good and aiming to help others participate in the good of society. So we have to think about these things, not focus necessarily on we're going to have some kind of magic pill that's going to fix me and make it so I don't have to have effort. But we have to make sure that we're uh, directing our resources to help in the best way possible, right? And focusing on the poor, but also bringing along the things that are going to have, make the most efficacious changes. And I think the social determinants of health are really one of those things we have to focus on and also get lost frequently in high-tech medicine, right? Right. And, and I agree completely with Dr. Schurz when he says the best way possible. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes what has been the problem in the past is that the experts think because they're experts, they know the best way possible. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, and I think all of us, when we stop to think about it, would agree with this. I know what the best way possible, or at least I have some input into what the best way possible would be for me. So when you're trying to do outreach to marginalized communities, when you're trying to do outreach to the underserved, right, the best way to find out what the best way possible it is to ask them, mm -hmm. right, yes. and include them in that process from the very beginning of the research, because then you have the much greater chance that it's oriented toward the kind of efficacious goal that we all claim we want to achieve. That's great. Well, this has been a really interesting, uh, thought-provoking session. I appreciate you guys coming in and, and spending some time with Marianne and I and talking about this. Marianne, any final thoughts from you? I always put you on the spot like you that. You do don't know. put me on the spot, Brian, um, but I want to thank you for putting me on the spot because I think it's been a great conversation and um, lots to think about. So thank you both very much. You're most thank welcome. You. So again, yeah, thanks to uh, Dr. Paul Shears from the Catholic University of America and Dr. Sorry, Father. Well, you're, you're a PhD, so yeah, I can right, also yeah. claim Dr. Father. <laughs> Dr. Father, Kevin Fitzgerald from Creighton University. Thank you both for being here. And this has been another episode of Catholic Health USA. We want to thank, again, our friends at Clayton Studios for engineering this episode. And until next time, we'll talk to you.